From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Molly Kaplan, your host. Over the years, the ACLU's commitment to the First Amendment has come under attack, both for the cases we take on and for those we don't. At the ACLU, we are committed to protecting free speech for all, not just those with whom we agree. And that commitment can come into tension with the other work we do defending civil rights and civil liberties. In this episode, we are pulling the curtain back on our history of defending free speech, on the choices we make, and on the conversations that went into those choices. For this episode, I'm handing the mic to At Liberty's former host and current ACLU free speech attorney, Emerson Sykes. He'll speak with former ACLU executive director, Arie Nyer, who led the organization during the controversial time in the 1970s when the ACLU defended the rights of neo-Nazis to march in Skokie, Illinois. They will address how a multi-issue organization can balance defending the rights of free speech even as it defends the other rights and liberties guaranteed in the Constitution. Ari and I are, it is such a pleasure to speak with you. So my name is Emerson Sykes. I'm a senior staff attorney at the ACLU. Uh, I'm on our speech, privacy, and technology project. And so I focus primarily on the First Amendment. I work on the First Amendment on college campuses. I work on the right to protest. And I work on sort of the intersection of free speech and racial justice. So... It's obviously quite an honor to to get to speak with you today, but I wanted to sort of have a conversation about sort of ACLU then and now connecting to sort of some of the other issues that you've that you've worked on in your in your career. So sound good? Yes, sounds good. Okay, cool. So you were the executive director of the ACLU about 50 years ago. The ACLU is 100 years old. I work there now. You were there 50 years ago. So I think there's a lot I'm curious about, and here I have to say I'm violating my own rule. As someone who works on the First Amendment for the ACLU, I always say we should never start with the Nazis. But here we are. We're going to start our conversation with Skokie. One of the most noteworthy things that happened while you were director was the Skokie trial. And, you know, the ACLU lost 30,000 members, including my own father. He didn't rejoin again until I joined the ACLU in 2018. Uh, But the ACLU was going through controversies when you were at the helm around who we represented, how we think about free speech. Uh, And then fast forwarding to today, you know, those issues continue. To be honest, I was hired in the wake of Charlottesville, which many people sort of compare to Skokie in these landmark moments in ACLU history. And I should just say, for those of you who are not familiar, the ACLU decided to represent a group of neo-Nazis who wanted to march through the town of Skokie, Illinois, which had a lot of Holocaust survivors. And in Charlottesville, the ACLU stood up for the organizers of the Unite the Right convening in Charlottesville and said that they at least had the right to a permit, where a day later, uh, tragically, Heather Heyer died. And then, as now, we're facing criticism. Some people say we take too many controversial cases Some people say we take not enough. Some people say the ACLU has lost its way. Others say we're still the same old terrible organization that we always were. And I'm curious from your perspective, is this, uh, you know, as as Yogi Berra might say, deja vu all over again? Or is there actually something new under the sun when it comes to these criticisms and the situation of the ACLU? 
No, I don't think there's anything new under the sun. I think there were always criticisms of the ACLU. There were people who thought we had lost our way in the uh, the 1970s. Uh, what happened uh, in the ACLU is that we had an influx of membership during the Nixon years, and many people joined because they were anti-Nixon. And then uh, when we took the Skokie case, even though Skokie was uh, similar in terms of the facts of the case uh, to many other cases we had taken, they weren't aware of that. And they had seen us as a broadly liberal organization and were somewhat shocked uh, to see uh, how we defended free speech for um, people who called themselves American Nazis. And so I think the people we lost um, over Skokie, the 30,000 you talk about, they um, were somewhat shocked by, by Skokie because it uh, departed from what they knew. People who had been long longer-term members knew that we defended free speech for everyone, and they were not shocked by the Skokie case. When we uh, defended the free speech for the uh, Nazis who wanted to march at Skokie, ultimately, they never marched there. Once we had uh, won the case, they were probably frightened uh, that if they went there, there would be many thousands of people uh, opposed to them, and they would be a handful of demonstrators. And so they chose uh, not to go to Skokie. They continued to demonstrate for a short period uh, in a park in Chicago that divided a predominantly African-American neighborhood from a neighborhood populated by um, East Europeans because they wanted to exploit racial animosity in that area. And then the little group of Nazis disappeared. No one ever heard of them again. And so we had successfully defended the First Amendment in terms of their right to march, but we did no favor to the, um, the group of Nazis themselves. They simply vanished. I want to talk about a few more comparisons between then and now. But one thing that, that strikes me is that the ACLU at that time the sort of internal dialogues around these issues, like whether to take a case like Skokie. And I've become really interested in how we sort of talk about our internal discussions around these cases. There's the fundamental issue of how we understand the First Amendment. There's this sort of more strategic question around which cases each organization does and does not take, you know, independent of their legal merits. And I'm reminded of uh, I actually spoke with one of your former colleagues, Eleanor Holmes Norton, about what it was like to decide to take these cases. And she recounts a story where you came to her asking how she would like to represent George Wallace, as he was the Alabama governor. She, she said, sure. <laughs> she said, sure. And you said, I was only joking. And she says, I wasn't. And of course, the, the, the sort of coda to that story is she did represent George Wallace. Yes. And, and she won. She, she represented him in his right to hold a rally at Shea Stadium. Uh, but this sort of back and forth between you, a, a Jewish man who was born in Germany, uh, and Eleanor Holmes Norton, at that time a young Black woman in the late 60s working for the ACLU, deciding whether or not you were going to take on a case representing the arch-racist 
George Wallace and his right to hold a rally. So I wonder what your recollection of that of that discussion and that decision was. Well, um, I, I recall the discussion. Eleanor was then the assistant legal director for the national organization, and I was the director of the New York Civil Liberties Union. And when uh, Wallace's manager called and asked about representation, I went looking for one of our staff attorneys, and uh, I found him uh, in Eleanor's office. And I asked him about um, representing George Wallace, and he pointed out that he had a court appearance the next morning and he couldn't uh, do it. And so I turned to Eleanor and asked, how about you? And that's when she responded, sure. <laughs> and it was a, a very casual request to her. But when I let it be known, a New York Times reporter, uh, subsequently a Pulitzer Prize winner named Sidney Shanberg, called me and he was so excited by it, he wanted to drive Eleanor <laughs> uh, to the uh, the courthouse in order to uh, to file the, uh, the lawsuit. And it was very valuable because we were representing uh, a large number of demonstrators against um, uh, racism in that period. We were also representing a lot of people who were protesting uh, the war in Vietnam, and we were being criticized for all of the people we were representing and showing that we were also willing to uh, represent uh, George Wallace helped to make people understand that our concern was free speech rather than the particular cause the uh, the individuals were representing. Well, yeah, I mean, people, people joke about the ACLU makes it sort of a habit of making as many enemies of as many different kinds as possible. And you said, you know, we responded to criticism by sort of welcoming some more criticism by taking on more controversial clients. Well, look, um, the ACLU started as uh, an organization during World War I that was a sort of predecessor of the ACLU called the Civil Liberties Bureau. And World War I and the period immediately after World War I were probably the, uh, the worst period for freedom of speech in the history of the United States. There had never been a Supreme Court case up to that point in which the court held that the First Amendment in any way restricted governmental action. A famous uh, scholar of free speech, Zechariah Chafee, a professor at Harvard, counted more than 2,000 prosecutions for speech during World War I. And people said the most mild things in opposition to U.S. entry into the war uh, or in opposition to the draft. In one case, a group of women were knitting socks for soldiers uh, during the war. And uh, another woman said, no soldier will ever see these socks. And she was in prison for five years, and she served her five-year sentence for that statement. Eugene Victor Debs, who was the Socialist Party candidate for president, was sentenced to 10 years uh, in prison, and he only was released when he was pardoned uh, somewhat later by uh, President Harding, of all people. But Eugene Victor Debs was sentenced to 10 years in prison for a mild uh, speech against entry into the war. And in the period after uh, World War I, there was a kind of red scare in the United States. That was the period of the Palmer Raids when the Justice Department uh, used its new 
Bureau of Intelligence, uh, now the uh, the FBI, to round up particularly aliens who had uh, said relatively un uncontroversial things, and many of them were uh, imprisoned, many of them were summarily deported. And the ACLU came into existence to deal with uh, those issues in, in that period. And uh, here it is more than 100 years later and still dealing with free speech issues in the United States. Well, it's a really important history, right? Because the ACLU was born uh, out of this impulse to fight back against tyranny, right? The government censorship, government trying to, to silence and, and, and expel folks that it didn't agree with. And I think it sort of ties into why we sort of do this work as an organization, but also as individuals. I referred to your background, I as an African-American, having worked all over Africa, you know, sort of come to this work informed by my experience working with activists in places where there isn't a First Amendment and where there aren't robust protections for free speech. And I think Eleanor Holmes Norton talked also about her commitment to the First Amendment came from her commitment to civil rights. And sort of having to represent these other folks is, uh, you know, at least as an ACLU attorney, part and parcel of our commitment to these underlying values. I wonder, maybe we can just take a, a second to listen to a quote from Eleanor about what it's like, you know, given where she was coming from, what it was like to actually represent uh, neo-Nazis in the Supreme Court. So let's just take a listen to what she said to At Liberty, and then we'll, we'll discuss. In 1968, you argued the Princess Anne's County case where the National States Rights Party, which was a white supremacist group, held a rally one night. No violence occurred, but there were certainly exchanges between the demonstrators and the counter-protesters. And then when the group tried to reconvene the following evening, the local municipality blocked them from marching. And you argued that this was a prior restraint and unconstitutional, and your arguments won the day. But I can only imagine what it was like as a young black woman, a young attorney working on behalf of the ACLU defending the rights of the National States Party. So can you just tell us what the decision was like to take that case and how it felt for you to argue it? The case I argued, to be sure, was for people with whom I could not have been most in disagreement. They used racial epithets. But the re reason that we had had free speech, continue to have free speech, particularly as African-American, is because nobody could keep us from speaking. They could keep us from using the same facilities. They could keep us from voting. But the First Amendment said everybody can talk. It turns out that free speech is most important to those who have the least in our society. So what's the best way to make that point? Represent those who have the most in society. This was a group of white men who felt quite entitled to degrade African-Americans and to use their free speech to do so. Finally, let me tell you, they could not get over their gratitude at being represented by me. <laughs> I told them not to worry. It was a special privilege. Eleanor won that case 9 nothing in the U.S. Supreme Court. Ultimately, anyone can be silenced. Um, it depends uh, who's in power uh, at a given moment, who they want to, uh, to silence, whether they want to silence them for political reasons or for corrupt reasons. There can be all kinds of uh, reasons to want to um, cut off somebody's speech. 
And the only way to prevail in free speech cases is to stand for the principle of freedom of speech, to say that uh, freedom of speech uh, cuts across all ideological concerns, all other concerns, and that uh, if anybody is denied the right to speak, it threatens the right to speak of everybody. There are countries which, as you say, it's the essential means of making democracy work. I can say from as someone who's involved in the discussions about what kind of First Amendment cases we take today in the ACLU, we have to weigh a lot of different factors. And, and I think, you know, we don't necessarily relish the opportunity to become sort of iconoclastic and take provocative clients just for the sake of it or just to seem self-righteous. But it really is, as you say, because we believe that the doctrine is important and it's worth protecting. You also founded the Human Rights Human Rights Watch, which is one of the largest global human rights organizations. You were the head of the Open Society Foundation. And I've also sort of spent my career going back and forth between international and domestic human rights. And one of the arguments that we often come up against as sort of free speech advocates is, you know, as much as we might say other countries don't have free speech and that's why we need it here, some other folks say, yeah, but other countries do ban hate speech. Why can't we do it here? People talk about sort of the quote unquote a European model for limiting hate speech. And I think, you know, as uh, you and I are sort of in unique positions to speak back against those kind of criticism, having worked internationally. So I'm curious how you respond to people who say, well, you know, other countries ban hate speech. Why can't we? Well, first of all, there are increasing protections for hate speech in various European countries. Uh, In European countries, the tendency is to look at both the content of speech and the context of speech. Did the speech take place in circumstances which are likely to uh, to pose uh, a danger? And did the person who was engaged in speech uh, contribute to that danger by the uh, the speech itself? And there is increasing uh, protection for free speech uh, in Europe. There are countries where there have been difficulties as a result of that. So the Danish uh, newspaper that published cartoons of the uh, the Prophet Muhammad came under threats and uh, was the victim of violence as a consequence of that. And there has been violence against the staff of a newspaper in France, Charlie Hebdo, uh, for republishing the cartoons from the uh, the Danish newspapers. But the, the movement in general in Europe is moving closer to the, uh, the American model rather than moving in the opposite direction. The countries that uh, will punish um, hate speech uh, very often use that power against minorities. Uh, For example, um, I'm familiar with a situation in Hungary where Viktor Orban is the uh, the prime minister. And there are laws against hate speech uh, in Hungary. But when I talk to lawyers um, in Hungary who are engaged in the defense of civil liberties, they tell me that most of the cases that are ever brought under the hate speech laws there um, are against the Roma, the minority that is discriminated against. They don't see cases against whites for hate speech against the Roma. And if you uh, are willing to go along with laws against hate speech, 
then you have to trust the authorities to use those laws uh, against all and not against uh, the minorities in particular. But very often when hate speech laws are available, they are used to target minorities uh, and thereby increase the, uh, the power of the government, uh, which primarily serves the, uh, the majorities. One should always remember that the people who are in charge of these, of the enforcement of the laws, are the authorities, the police and uh, the prosecutors in any given country. And you have to be trusting in them uh, to feel that they're going to use those laws in an appropriate manner. Well, it's, it's a really important point. You, you talked about Hungary. My, the organization that I used to work for ended up having to close their office in Hungary because of Orban's crackdown on civil society. And you mentioned the enforcement problem, both, you know, it's hard to figure out how to define hate speech and it's most often enforced against minorities, but it's also very ineffective at preventing the kind of sort of classic hate speech, um, you know, the far-right Nazism, neo-Nazism that it's in many cases designed to prevent. And in many of those European countries that you're mentioning, the far-right is ascendant, despite the fact that over the last several decades they've tried to ban such types of speech. So I think it's both unenforceable and demonstrably ineffective in many cases in trying to actually stamp out hatred. But I think another theme that you you picked up on is this sort of lack of trust for government, right? And I think, you know, in my discussions with other civil rights advocates, with other folks who may or may not be within the ACLU who have questions about why we are so adamant about the First Amendment, most often the common ground can come from, well, do we really trust the government to make these types of decisions? And this sort of rebellious streak, I think, runs through many activists, especially within the ACLU. But I want to come, and I think that hasn't changed. So when you look at our First Amendment work uh, in the present day, does it look recognizably like the ACLU? Does it look dramatically different than the kind of work that you did when you were there or that you wish that we were doing now? Now, as I look at the, uh, the ACLU's work today, uh, it seems very much in line with what the ACLU was doing in my way, representing people who are engaged in public protests. We are representing people across uh, a political spectrum. We are engaged in uh, all different parts of the country. We are dealing with issues in local schools and libraries uh, where the battles um, often take place without a great deal of attention to them. And uh, it seems uh, very much in line with what the ACLU was doing in my day, was doing before my day, and what I hope the ACLU will continue to do uh, going forward. I would say the main difference probably is uh, we didn't have the uh, the online issues to deal with uh, in my day. That represents a novelty and uh, complications that we, we didn't have to consider. Technology has wrought some changes. Some people have argued that free speech is more imperiled now than it was before. Do you agree with that? No, I, I, I don't think free speech is more imperiled today than it was in the past. I think the two most dangerous periods for free speech in the history of the United States were the period uh, following World War I when there was a Red Scare and when there had never been a Supreme Court decision applying the First Amendment to protect uh, freedom of speech. 
And in the period of uh, post-World War II, when there was another Red Scare led by Senator Joseph McCarthy and the House Un-American Activities Committee and other congressional bodies in which uh, they tried to make associations with left-wing organizations, examples of subversion, and quite a few people went to prison for refusing to answer questions of bodies like the, uh, the House on american Activities Committee. I think those were the, uh, the two most dangerous periods uh, for the First Amendment in American history. No, I, I, I appreciate that note. Some people sort of point to the fact that we have multiple interests that we're balancing and say that it is a handicap in some way. But I think that it's a great source of strength. I mean, as a First Amendment attorney, I could be doing some of the similar work for an organization that only did First Amendment work. But one of my favorite parts about my job is that I also, I'm working on a case right now with the LGBT rights project. I'm working on a case right now with the National Prisons Project. I've worked on cases with the Racial Justice Project. So being able to even internally combine our First Amendment work with all of our other issues is among among the things that I value most about, about my position. No, and look, if one thinks in terms of racial justice, it's impossible to further racial justice without strong defense of the First Amendment. Um, People who have been victimized by racial injustice have to be able to associate with others, have to be able to uh, call attention to the the abuses they've suffered, have to be able to engage in protests. And uh, First Amendment uh, rights are the the critical way of advancing racial justice. In, In my day at the ACLU, many of the important free speech gains that we made were cases involving um, the rights of uh, people to demonstrate against um, uh, racial injustice. Yeah, no, I I think, you know, the, the great strength of our organization is that we cover so many issues, that we're in all 50 states, and that we have this legacy of 100 years behind us that we've seen crises before. We've responded to national crises. We were built to respond to these types of national crises. But I'm curious, um, from from your vantage point, what you're looking forward to or fearful about in the future of the ACLU. Well, look, I'm I'm not a very good prophet. (laughs) If you had asked me um, uh, 10 years ago to to predict where we would be today... You didn't uh, have coronavirus on your car? <laughs> I didn't have coronavirus. I didn't have Donald Trump uh, in mind as the uh, the president of the United States. I could not have envisioned uh, the way in which the uh, the country has developed uh, during the uh, the past ten years. Having said that, um, I do believe that a number of the issues with which the ACLU is uh, concerned today still going to be with us uh, for the uh, for the foreseeable future. You mentioned the online issue so far as freedom of expression is concerned. Clearly, we haven't arrived at good ways of dealing um, uh, with those issues. Uh, we don't know quite what to make of the power of companies like Facebook and Google, to what extent uh, they should be regulated by the government. That still remains uh, to be uh, worked out. We've still got a very long way to go as far as racial justice uh, issues uh, are concerned. So I think a lot of the issues we we have today will still be with us uh, for many years to come. 
Arya Nair, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Your insights are always welcome, uh, and we really appreciate all the work you've done and continue to do uh, for us all. Thank you very much. It was a great pleasure to talk to you today. Thanks so much to Arya Nair for joining us and to Emerson Sykes for guest hosting this episode. And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We always appreciate the feedback. Until next week, stay strong.